Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Um, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. Back in March, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, launched its policy on promoting the rights of indigenous peoples. This is USAID's first formal policy on how to engage and partner with indigenous peoples around the world. Our guest today is Luis Felipe Luchisela, a senior advisor at the USAID Center of Excellence on Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance. Prior to joining USAID, Luis Felipe served as global advisor on indigenous peoples at the World Bank and as Ecuador's first minister for indigenous people's affairs. Luis Felipe also holds a master's degree in public and private management from Yale University. We're honored to connect with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Margarita. Also, I'm very happy to be here. Before we dive into USAID's engagement with indigenous peoples, I would love to learn more about your personal background. What brought you to this work? How have your personal experiences informed and shaped your vision for incorporating indigenous people's rights into global development efforts? I think most of it, I owe that to my grandfather, who was uh, an indigenous person from the highlands of Ecuador in the Chimborazo province. And he migrated out of his community and got an education, and he was very influential in my upbringing, and he uh, really exemplified a proud indigenous person who loved his uh, roots, his history, his identity, and he inculcated that to me and my siblings, and I think that was the start of it. Later, when I was uh, 18 years old, I had the opportunity to study Universidad Central del Ecuador in Quito, Ecuador, to me, that was a discovery because I engaged with the indigenous peoples movement of Ecuador at that time and learned about indigenous peoples and their situation, being in extreme poverty and marginalized by governments, etc. And later in my life, I had the opportunity to become the first national secretary uh, or minister for indigenous peoples and Afro-Ecuadorian affairs under President Sixto Durán Valleng in 1994. And that also allowed me to have a first-hand experience with uh, indigenous communities in my home country of Ecuador. And I was able to um, build a uh, integrated development program for indigenous peoples and Afro-Ecuadorians at that time with a $50 million investment loan from the World Bank and other donors. And uh, later I had the opportunity to become the global advisor for indigenous peoples at the World Bank, which allowed me to learn about indigenous peoples globally. Up to that moment, my main experience was in Latin America. I had lived in about eight or nine countries in Latin America, mostly doing work in conservation organizations, sustainable livelihoods, international development, some of them USAID-funded projects. So I was very knowledgeable of the experience and situation of small producers, smallholders, forest dwellers in Latin America. But at the World Bank, I had the opportunity to lead the global dialogue with indigenous peoples in order to inform the reform process of the environmental and social framework of the bank. 
of which uh, the indigenous people's policy was uh, an important part. And so I led dialogues all over the world from Vietnam to Colombia, Russia, South Africa, etc., etc. And to me, it was a wonderful opportunity to learn about the 40-year struggle of indigenous peoples globally to gain recognition at the United Nations, which they finally did in 2007 through the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So it was a wonderful learning for me, not only because of the uh, global scope, but also because I learned a lot about the main concerns of indigenous peoples for their future, their vision, and the situation from one country to another, and also from one region to another. Let me start by asking some questions to gain a better understanding of USAID's engagement of indigenous peoples in global development, and why is this a development priority? So historically, how have indigenous communities been perceived and participated in the agency's development efforts, what led USAID to develop a formal policy? USAID, I believe, has been very good historically to um, include uh, indigenous peoples into their programs as beneficiaries. I can tell you this from firsthand experience. I worked on USAID-funded projects in Bolivia, in Guatemala, in Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, and other countries, Mexico as well. And indigenous peoples were mostly included as beneficiaries of economic growth programs having to do with productive activities, income generation, and of course, other social protection aspects such as health, education, etc. So I would say USAID has been very active in including indigenous peoples in their programs. Now, I think the big difference vis-a-vis what's occurring now or what's about to start happening as a result of the new uh, USAID policy on promoting the rights of indigenous peoples is that the agency has established a vision for self-reliance and they they call it the journey to self-reliance. And I only have a bit less than one year and a half at USAID. I started in June of 2019, so I'm new at the agency. And one thing I have discovered is that there is a strong commitment on the part of USAID for this journey to self-reliance. And also, there is a commitment to include new partners for USAID to um, build the capacities of, let's call them, non-conventional partners to implement the projects and the programs and technical assistance that USAID provides. So I think that that has been the, the context within this policy was developed. I also think even though, as I said, I've only been relatively short time at USAID, I also think that there has been a realization that there is a need for a more specialized focus on indigenous people's uh, issues and not something that can be considered as just part of other groups, which could be farmers or you know small landowners, etc. I think there is a realization for that. And I think a lot of this we owe to my predecessor, Brian Keane, who was the first senior advisor for indigenous peoples at USA, I believe from 2012 or 2013 until he retired in 2018. He was the one who really pushed for this policy. So the policy really is very consistent with the journey to self-reliance of USAID and with the belief that through building the capacities of these partner organizations and empowering them, 
USAID will be able to better fulfill its mission of seeking sustainable development, prosperity, democracy in many countries. While you were working at the World Bank, you consulted with indigenous communities all over the world, from the Amazon to Vietnam to the DRC. These communities are very diverse, but they all have faced similar struggles in terms of preserving their territories, their livelihoods, and even the, their culture and language. Indigenous women and children have been especially vulnerable in these struggles and are often negatively impacted. How does USAID's engagement with Indigenous peoples compare to that of other international institutions like the World Bank, for example? That's a very important question, I think, because the World Bank is a multilateral organization, financial institution, and is essentially a bank. It lends money to governments. Whereas USAID is a bilateral cooperation agency that mainly provides grants, you know, non-reimbursable funds to countries. So that, that establishes a, a big difference in the approach. But I would say that the way that institutions like the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and other financial institutions, I think that their approach to indigenous peoples has been quite progressive over the years. I found out that the World Bank, when I started working at the World Bank in 2013, had already about 30 years of work in developing their policies. And the operating policy that they had at the time, in 2013, was quite a rigorous policy. And through the consultation that I led in the next three, four years after that, made it even stronger. And I would say that nowadays the World Bank's Environmental and Social Standard 7, which is the name of the current policy, or current standard is perhaps the gold standard in the world. However, the big difference is that is essentially a policy that focuses on risk management. It's essentially, at the end of the day, is a safeguards policy, which means that it, it's really interested in ensuring that the bank does not cause any harm to the indigenous peoples, and that in working with indigenous peoples, you minimize the reputational risk for the bank. So it's a very risk management policy. The big difference is that with USAID's new policy is that the USAID policy is totally different in that sense. USAID's policy is a very proactive policy. It directs the missions to engage, empower, and partner with indigenous peoples. It's designed in a way to help the missions to have uh, participatory designs and planning with indigenous peoples to include them as partners. And of course, it focuses more on the vision for development for the future and to attack social and economic problems of the indigenous peoples rather than establishing rigorous procedures to ensure that there is no harm produced. So it's a huge difference, and I'm really happy that USAID has this policy with this approach, which, in my view, is a new paradigm in the way you engage with indigenous people. Not to say that others perhaps have other bilateral organizations or NGOs or United Nations entities have also done that kind of approach, but I would say that USAID's uh, new policy is uh, perhaps, um, now it has become, let's say, the gold standard, but from the standpoint of a broader vision for development and oriented 
clearly for self-determined development. It's also a serious commitment to ensure that indigenous peoples are engaged, as you mentioned, engaged in and benefit from the USAID development efforts. Could you walk us through the main objectives and operating principles of the policy, please? The policy has four key objectives which are interconnected and should not be seen as uh, you know separate. They clearly build on each other. And my recommendation is that the USAID missions, in designing their programs, they try to look at the four objectives as one single goal to achieve. So the first objective is to engage with indigenous peoples in an open, transparent way, in a productive way, to engage in a permanent way, not to engage when there is going to be a project and you need to talk to the indigenous peoples in order to get some information. And check a box. Right. You have to engage in a way that you get to know indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples get to know USAID and our implementing partners, of course, to establish a long-term relationship and essentially build trust. That's the whole purpose of that first objective. The second objective has two components or two parts to it. The first part is to identify the indigenous people's priorities and bring them to the mainstream of the portfolio of USAID missions. So why is that so important? Because to give you an example, one thing is to design income generation activity for campesinos, you know, for farmers in Colombia, let's say, in which 25% or 30% of them are indigenous peoples and the other are non-indigenous peoples. And we just treat the whole group as one. We don't differentiate much in terms of the needs, approaches, strategies, etc. Well, this policy is telling us that we need to change that approach. We need to focus on the indigenous peoples, understand their priorities, understand their rights, understand their particular circumstances and their struggle, and then try to build that into the mainstream of the portfolio. In other words, create more dedicated programs for indigenous peoples where they are the main protagonists and partners for the assistance rather than a secondary or tertiary component of a larger program. The second part of that second objective goes hand in hand with this, and I really like it very much, which is it directs USAID missions to use a holistic approach for programming. This is very interesting because normally, in my experience of more than 40 years in, in development, I can tell you that governments, bilateral agencies, multilaterals, UN agencies, most international cooperation agencies like to do sectoral programs. They like to focus on health or education or agriculture or forestry. You hardly find programs that are integrated or holistic. Well, this policy is telling us that because normally the vision of indigenous peoples is a holistic vision, we need to also use a holistic approach. The third objective is perhaps one of the most difficult ones to achieve because it's to empower indigenous peoples. And that is mainly done through capacity building and through devolving the decision-making power to indigenous peoples. But in order to achieve that objective, USAID missions and USAID partners will have to understand one very important aspect of indigenous peoples, and that is their governance structure. 
If we do not understand their governance structure, there is no way that we can help them in becoming empowered. Because empowered, by definition, means that their representative leadership has the power to make decisions. And in, in order to make decisions, they need to be informed. They need to be capacitated to take those decisions. And the government, the, the countries in which they work, they, they live, have to have appropriate policies to allow them to do that. But I really love this third objective. I think it's a challenge and an opportunity as well to really empower the indigenous peoples to, to take on the direction of their efforts. The fourth objective goes hand in hand with the other three, and it's basically to foster an enabling environment. That basically means to help the indigenous peoples to establish dialogues with other stakeholders of society, mainly their national governments, but also the private sector, the NGOs, the rest of civil society. If you think about any country where indigenous peoples live, they may be 5% of the population, they may be 15% of the population or more. Perhaps one of the countries with the largest percentage is Guatemala with 44% of the population. But even then, the dominant society hardly knows indigenous people, hardly understand the uh, circumstances of indigenous peoples, their vision, their culture, and their rights. So it's important to produce, to have this enabling environment. And I think USAID, with the convening power of the U.S. government, can certainly bring parties together to have open, transparent, frank dialogues and engagement and have concrete goals, like, for instance, to improve public policy, to create regulatory frameworks so that public policy can be effectively exercised and implemented, and that sort of thing. And learning about USAID in this past year and a half, I can tell you USAID has expertise, experience, technical people that can certainly do this you know, in the field. In regard to the operating principles, there's five operating principles. The first one is to identify indigenous peoples. It's important to note that there is no universal definition of indigenous peoples because the term indigenous peoples is a term that was convened at the United Nations in 2007 to identify more than 5,000 nations in the world. Each one of them has their own name. So many people don't understand this and literally interpret indigenous peoples in the meaning that you find in the dictionary, the literal meaning, but it's not like that. The indigenous peoples is a compound term to represent these 5,000 groups around the world. But it's difficult to identify, especially in Africa and Asia. Latin America doesn't have that much of an issue or of a problem. There are historical circumstances, very strong cultural and social aspects that make it more difficult to clearly identify indigenous peoples in Africa, for instance. But there is a lot of efforts also. The Africa Commission on Peoples and Rights has done substantial studies on how to identify uh, indigenous peoples in, in Africa, in the Africa uh, context. But that's the first operating principle. The second operating principle is to analyze. That is to carry out political economy analysis, carry out very good, solid, robust analysis and assessments of the particular situation of indigenous peoples, socially, economically, geographically, culturally, etc. So that's the second operating principle. The third operating principle is to engage with indigenous people, which is part of the first objective, is to build that level of trust and constant dialogue with indigenous peoples. The fourth operating principle is safeguard. 
So this operating principle would be equivalent to the one that I was referring to where the World Bank is very strong. Here, we do have it, but we have to note that it's only one principle out of five. It's great that we have it, you know, the do no harm aspect, and the policy provides tools for USAID missions to have uh, impact assessments, to carry out impact evaluations, and it's perhaps the only principle that has a mandatory directive, which is that if the impact evaluation yields the result that a severe impact may be received by the indigenous peoples, then the mission needs to carry out or the implementing partner needs to ensure that a free prior informed consent approach is carried out for that particular situation. And the fifth operating principle is to partner. So once you do the other ones, then you can say you're ready to become partners. And, and, and this is important too, because we are evolving from a paradigm of donor being USAID versus beneficiary being the indigenous peoples to being donor is the partner, indigenous peoples is our partner. So we become partners towards development and prosperity. And that's, that's the way this new policy is. The directives and the, the guidelines, the guidance, the tools that it offers allows the missions to walk towards that direction. Let's talk a little bit about the Global Development Alliance. One of your responsibilities at USAID is to leverage the agency's Global Development Alliance mechanism to focus on the needs of indigenous communities. This involves improving the technical capacity of indigenous peoples, organizations, and partnering with private sector. Could you give us some examples of how the private sector can play a role in improving the lives of indigenous peoples in the region? There are good examples, uh, but there are also many, many bad examples in the world, not only from USAID. But one important thing to know is that early on, when I started working at USAID, I proposed the creation of a Global Development Alliance for Indigenous Peoples. And we're very fortunate and really happy that in August, a cooperative agreement was signed between USAID and the Forest Stewardship Council for the first ever GDA, or Global Development Alliance, from USAID focusing exclusively on Indigenous Peoples. So this is a $13 million five-year program with the FSC as a partner that is oriented precisely to build the capacities of indigenous peoples, foster this enabling environment that we were talking about, and in the end, to promote business partnerships and economic development, which is, goes to your question. So I very strongly believe that nowadays, the main aspect that needs to be developed or worked for indigenous peoples jointly is the economic aspect. I think the economic aspect has been neglected for many, many years. And there's reasons for that. You know, it's not something that just happened because people wanted it that way. There's strong reasons for that. But nowadays I see there is a willingness on the part of the indigenous people's organizations to discuss and consider economic development. And I, I see the same attitude on the part of not all, but I would say many corporations and businesses around the world. And I certainly see that also from the government side and from international cooperation agencies. So it's a good moment to begin to seriously think and design programs oriented for economic development. So this GDA that, by the way, is going to be based in Panama City, Panama, a beautiful country, in the city of knowledge in La Ciudad del Saber, we're lucky that we already have our 
key personnel has been already selected and all of them will be starting as of December 1st. And the first country with which we'll work is Guatemala. So we're really fortunate that we have an excellent partner country. But this Global Development Alliance is precisely oriented in the end to strengthen the economies of indigenous peoples. But the theory of change that we're using is that there cannot be sustainable economic development with identity that respect the rights of indigenous peoples if there isn't a proper approach for consistent capacity building of the indigenous peoples' representative organizations, government officials, and the private sector, and also a proper enabling environment, especially in the political aspect. In other words, public policy, regulatory frameworks, institutional support at the government level. So basically what we're saying is that the old formula of just designing income-generating activities, coffee, cocoa, ecotourism, handicrafts, apicultura, etc., etc., in it by themselves are not necessarily conducive for indigenous peoples to grow their economies in a sustainable way or to develop their economies in a sustainable way. We need to have these other components that go first and then parallel And we need to ensure the full participation of indigenous peoples in the driver's seat of this process to ensure that their rights are respected. So that's where I think that one approach that I really like very much, and I learned about this when I was at the World Bank, uh, although it was not quite a mainstream aspect of the bank, but there was a trust fund led by the Nordic countries that allowed me at the bank to learn about a human rights-based approach for indigenous peoples' development. And I really think that's an excellent approach. And I think we plan to use that in this uh, GDA that we're just beginning in, uh, uh, based out of Panama. Terrific. Luis Felipe, this has been a fantastic, fascinating and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. USAID is really lucky to have someone like you leading this effort. I wish you much, much success. Thank you very much, Margarita. We really enjoyed this interview as well. Thank you so much. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>